Hey everybody, welcome to It's Real with Jordan and Demi. What's going on, Demi? What's up, Jordan? Demi is in LA, I am in New York. Our guest today is frontman for the Get Up Kids, a band that has influenced acts like Fallout Boy and My Chemical Romance. And now he's hosting a podcast about the history and impact of Vagrant Records through interviews with members of bands like Newfound Glory and Blink-182 face-to-face, and of course, the Get Up Kids. So here he is. Please welcome Matt Pryor. Hello. What's going on, Matt? Uh, not much. Just hanging out in my garage, talking to nice. you lovely people. Oh, appreciate it. <laughs> um, your, your beard game is amazing as... I trimmed mine by myself this morning and because I knew I just couldn't compete with your volume. So. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of started at the beginning of lockdown and then I just kind of liked it. And now I have to actually drive to Kansas City, which is like 45 minutes away to get uh, my beard cut. Like I, my beard. Got I, I, got a, beard I got a I got a beard guy. I got a beard guy. It's important. It's important. It's it's a diff- I live in Brooklyn here, and it's it's hard to find the right people to cut and trim and everything. I totally get that. You're hosting this this podcast for Vagrant, 25 years, of course. Vagrant, legendary rock label with bands like you know Saves the Day and the Get Up Kids, of course, Face to Face, Dashboard Confessional. Uh, so it was a a big a lot of stuff to go over. So. Matt, tell us how you got roped into doing this podcast in the first place. Uh, well, a couple of years ago, I did hang on just this. A couple of years ago, I did my own uh, podcast. It was called Nothing to Write Home About, where I just interviewed my friends and people and other people in bands. And so when this vagrant thing came up, they approached me about about doing this. And I was like, well, yeah, it just sounds like the same thing I did previously. So uh, no problem. And Honestly, it's been really fun because I basically it's given me an excuse to like hang out with people that I haven't talked to sometimes in a couple of years um, and just sort of like talk about this crazy kind of crazy time that we all had together. A lot of it is about obviously the bands you interacted with. But one thing I really found fascinating, the first episode is about the, the history of the label and about the logistics in the 90s of creating an indie label and distribution and signing bands and getting albums and CDs pressed. Uh, there's a really great story about where at one point Vagrant was getting CDs pressed by a guy who also did <laughs> porn DVDs uh-huh. and who was backed by the Chinese mafia. Who was apparently a- murdered by the Chinese mafia. Wow. So it's something like- Allegedly, if, allegedly. Allegedly. So if even if you're a person who- who's into true crime podcast, there's something for you on. I think that's the only, the only, tr- <laughs> the, the only, only the only alleged murder in the whole story. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that was actually kind of, uh, I hope that's interesting. It's interesting to me. I mean, that story is interesting regardless, but like just the kind of the inner workings of, of, of how uh, a label works and uh, just how complicated and crazy. And, and, and this comes up as we move forward in it of like, how I was not aware of that at the time being in a band uh, that, you know, that they, they were having, like it, it, they really were like teetering on the edge of oblivion the entire time that we were on tour in the late nineties. And it's just, it's just such an interesting uh, uh, thing to learn about now, 20 years later. You guys started on Doghouse, part of the part of the story, there's an episode about the Get Up Kids is not Get Up Kids Part One, and sure Part Two is coming soon. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And because you guys were kind of at the center of the whole Vagrant thing, you were the first band to really break out and sell a lot of um, albums through Vagrant. But you guys were on another small label, Doghouse, before that. Tell us about your decision to go with Vagrant. I know that you had some uh, some interaction with bigger labels, but what was the appeal of Vagrant at the time? Uh. Well, honestly, as you can hear kind of in the second episode of the podcast, the first of the two Get a Kids ones, it was really kind of an act of desperation. Uh, we were on Doghouse and we were very unhappy there. And, you know, we go into more detail about that in the podcast. And so we were like, okay, we're, we're you know, the only option to leave an indie label is to go to a major label. So let's start talking to major labels. And we talked to major labels for like a year and they basically all just treated us like we were stupid little kids uh it, it that's probably oversimplifying it they 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 we were a band that was already successful and they were treating us like the 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 higher ups at the labels were treating us like we were we weren't um a proven commodity to put it in business terms and so kind of out of desperation our manager who owned vagrant records uh was like well, what if we just do it on my label and then you know i'll give you this really good artist friendly deal if we do it here and we were just honestly so burnt out after all of these like you know uh, months and months of negotiations and and getting getting nowhere that we were just like okay fine we'll just do it with you and you know that, that's i don't want to minimize it that we we did believe in rich the owner and especially in kevin who was the i don't know what he was his title was he was just kind of a and r person i guess but like kevin kusatsu uh is the unsung hero of of vagrant records he is really the linchpin of the whole thing and he's gone on to become a very successful uh he was or still is diplo's manager <laughs> like he's a very successful guy and uh you know you in that, and he was working with us when he was like 17 18 years old and he was he was just light years ahead of anybody else in the industry i hope that answers your take question. us back to the 90s in candace Kansas City. Um, okay. What was the music scene like? What did it smell like? You know, mm. what were the kids dressed like? What were they into? What were you into? <laughs> what did All it smell? It. Well, uh, <laughs> this is gross, but uh, our rehearsal space in Kansas City in the '90s didn't have a toilet, and so there were um, soda bottles involved, and so that didn't smell great. Uh, the music scene in Kansas City that was like kind of the club scene was a lot heavier. Like it was bands like Season of Risk and Molly Maguire and Shiner that were kind of like uh, more more like um, not grunge, but kind of in that vein of like a heavy, heavier sounding, less pop oriented stuff. And then in the underground, like what the kids were doing, which was us, uh, was just anything goes. There was you know, ska bands like the Gadgets, there were hardcore bands like Coalesce, there were uh, quote-unquote emo bands like Boys Life and Giants Chair and Us and pop punk bands and just like the whole the whole gamut. And it was just kind of like we would all get together at these VFW hall shows and it would be us, a ska band, a hardcore band, a pop punk band. And it was we were all just part of this. We were all just misfits. There was no like... Our common our commonality was that we weren't part of the mainstream, and that was the only thing that we had in common. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, there wasn't a really strong um, like scene in the sense of of that you see like in East Coast cities, like uh, and like down in Florida and 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 Southern California. It it was just it's very, you know, the the biggest benefit of being in Kansas City is it's proximity to be able to do um, touring because you're basically right in the middle of the country and you can do like figure eights, you know, throughout the country. You don't have to go from New like to tour from New York to San Diego. You're talking about like a two week commitment just to even get there. Um, but we were able to like, you know, it, it just kind of go wherever and still have a home base. If that makes any sense. What were we wearing? Uh, <laughs> We shopped at thrift stores and at uh, uniform supply. There was a uniform supply company, so we I, we would wear like, like n not Dickies, but kind of like Dickies pants and like uniform pants. And uh, I was really into like the gas station attendant jackets. Um, the other guys in the band were. I, I was going for a straight up like kind of like rockabilly, kind of uh, greaser kind of look. Uh, or Midwest greaser kind of look. The other guys were kind of into more of a like, I guess like a, a nerd chic, <laughs> as it were, like glasses and sweaters and kind of kind of Weezer influenced fashion sense. That nerd rock look. Yeah, uh, un un unintentionally. I don't think that, that that's just what they were they were into. But I was like full. I wanted to be John Reese from Rocket from the Crypt. So I was like full on like slick my hair back, get a potato like old like Elvis microphone. And you know, totally. Wear, Did you have wear, the pompadour? You had like the well, kind of. I didn't. It never got much height. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. was more like just back. But I, I wanted to have a pompadour. I'm. Uh, this is bringing back. I'm. I'm a Kansas City guy. I grew up listening to you guys. And wait, 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 wait. Where are you from? I'm from. Uh, yeah, I'm from Raytown. <laughs> Do you think I'm white trash? Not everybody from Ray Raytown is white trash. And I, so I take offense. I like that you said not everyone. You basically implied that the majority of people are. My dad was a, 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 a labor lawyer who represented the police in Raytown. So I, I do have some connection uh, there. And we, we used to play at the Raytown Skate Shop. That was some of like the first shows I ever played. Um, I remember the Raytown Skate Shop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was too young. I'm younger than you. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> but, most people are, uh, the, yeah, I remember that like they're the big deal in Kansas city with these, with these punk bands, pop up bands was the, the church basements. Yeah. We never got into that as much. I think that was kind of after you guys well, were because we were kind of hesitant of the religious side of it. Like we played a couple of Christian coffee houses and stuff and yeah, you know, we're drinking beers in the parking lot or whatever. And it just wasn't. The Christian coffee house scene in Missouri is like that's 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 a thing. That's it's a really I think it's definitely like a very midwestern thing. Uh, yeah, or it was it was then there was I had this we had this what was the name of that place? It was behind Recycled Sounds. Uh, it was a Christian coffee house that a friend of ours dad ran, and they made the band submit lyrics before they would let them perform. And so we had this great idea that we were going to do a fake band called Jesus is the Reason, like Texas is the Reason. Right. And like submit all these fake lyrics and go play the show, but we never we never pulled it off. So, yeah, no, I don't think that you're white trash because you're from Raytown. You could be white trash for completely other reasons. I appreciate that. That's uh, that's that's nice of you. That's nice of you. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mentioned you know growing up listening to you guys, and to me, there were these 
every every one of these little labels had their own kind of vibe to them. I thought of Fueled by Ramen to me was kind of like for kids. It was kind of like younger, like less mature music. And Epitaph was like hard and it was for people who wore like spiked collars and stuff. And I felt Vagrant was like the thinking man's rock indie label. <laughs> um, I felt like the band's, the lyrics were a little bit more thought out. And I felt like the riffs were a little bit more developed and mature. You didn't have that what you describe in the pocket is the ducka 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 that kind of bass snare bass yeah. snare bass snare. We Most call it the, we call it the cutting steak beat. The cutting the, steak beat. The yeah. drummers just going like this the whole time, like they're cutting steak. Yeah, I just I think of that when I think of that I think of like those that that's quintessential like warp tour band sound to me. Yeah, I mean um, it's it's kind of a you know post no sorry my peas like post no effects kind of like SoCal sort of sort of thing, which just. It's fine. It's and and I'm a fan of a lot of those bands and 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 but it just wasn't what we were really going for like an indie rock kind of thing. Like we were more influenced by bands like Super Chunk and like Archers of Loaf and and stuff like that and Fugazi and um, which came out on later albums. Yeah, I, I think I can I can hear it on the early stuff too. It's just not as pronounced because uh, we didn't know we just weren't capable of doing it. Like we were, you know, eighteen years old. We don't know how to do like complicated riffs and stuff like that. One thing that's interesting about this whole thing is that you know you do all these interviews and you've heard all these stories. When you were going through and talking to those people, was there, was there stuff that you didn't know that you found out? Kind of. Oh yeah. You just weren't aware of. Uh, yes. And there were things that I had forgotten, like completely forgotten. Um, you had completely gotten the, the order of when you were per, uh, work trying to get bigger labels on board. You thought I've, that was happening before Doghouse, or you thought it was after Doghouse, but it was actually, I had forgotten Mojo had, had been sniffing around before. I, yeah, I had forgotten that there was one major label that came around before we even signed to Doghouse. And I think in my, my, my brain, I just kind of like lumped that in with all the other major labels we met with after Doghouse. And Rob Pope, our bass player, was like, no, we met with that guy like, you know, from, from uh, Slash like before we ever even signed to Doghouse. And um, and like that all came kind of flooding, flooding back to me. Um, but something that's kind of interesting that's because uh, I listened to the first edit of the next episode today when I was on a walk and it goes into the time period that we where this one, le the episode two leaves off where we're making our record on a wire. And then when we're making our record guilt show and then when I ultimately quit the band, uh, that we all interpret that time very differently. And I think that that's, it's almost kind of difficult to tell the story. I, I think that that's why it's taking so long to edit because it's, you're, it's not a, it's not a conducive narrative. Like it's, it's every one of ours interpretation of this really kind of like difficult time in our lives. And so that, I think that'll be a really interesting thing to hear, but yeah, there's a ton of stuff that I, I didn't, I mean, I, like I was saying before, I didn't know anything about the Chinese ma Chinese mafia murdering a porn distributor, you know, like, and how that yeah. affected my career. <laughs> you know, kids are independent for years and years and they're killing it and they're putting up music on SoundCloud and then eventually getting so much power that they have so much leverage when it comes to like a major label coming in and, you know, not, not 
forcing them to do some 360 deal. Um, oh, I, I think it's fantastic. For 50K. I, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, no, I mean, I, I think it's fantastic because it's it's just like it's it's this it's honestly it's the modern version of like discord records or or even sub pop back in the day of just like you know i'm just going to do my own thing and if that system comes around then you're going to have to pay me for it because i'm already doing my own my own thing and i just i think it's just a fantastic use of of the technology and and the way the industry like evolves like that so i i, I applaud people who you know, I mean, the, the whole story of our band signing to Vagrant Records is us taking a chance on our on ourselves as opposed to like giving up control just to sign to a major label and have uh, more money. So anybody else that can do that, I think, is, on um, you know, has a, a true entre entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> One of the narratives that goes through this, Matt, is that once the label wants something to write home about the album you recorded for vagrant that was a huge indie smash all the the um you know was they couldn't press enough of them they kept you know having to redo new versions and if you look at the discography the vagrant discography there's like seven different pressings of something to write home about mm -hmm. in a year and a half period so what was the experience like where you felt like you were kind of overwhelming the label and oh i and never i never knew that at all that's something that i only really learned from doing this podcast like that was and I you, think, were you were touring a lot of this during this time period my interpretation of it at the time is that they were keeping up with our schedule and mm -hmm. which was something that doghouse wasn't doing a good job of doing and so that's what i wanted that's what we wanted from them and i think smartly uh, because it was our manager who owned half of the record label, we were kept in the dark about how chaotic and just crazy things were at the label at the time because they didn't want us to worry about it. You know, we're just, they, they wanted us like. Just just make rock and roll, go out and play shows. And, well, I mean, you yeah. know, for, yes, but like from a business sense, they wanted us working, you know, like selling too many records is a good problem to have. You know what I mean? Like you, it's, it's better than not, you know what I mean? So it's, it's certainly, uh, I'm, I'm sure it was super stressful for them, but I, I think that they would call it a net positive. Speaking of like this, the chaos of the music business, um, as someone in the band, what was it like, you know, how did you deal with the stresses of being an entertainer and playing a live show every day in a different city? Um, what were some things that you did to cope? Uh, we drink a lot. Um, the, <laughs> I mean, honestly, we started touring when Ryan was like, we were 18, 19, 20. Right. And we just always did it like this. And it was always this kind of like work ethic of, um, you know, if you're, you know, if you're not playing, you're still paying, like, meaning that like, if you have a day off, you still have to pay for gas and, uh, you know, find somewhere to stay or pay for a hotel room or something like that. And so, which is something that you can do when you're 20 years old, you know, like you can. And so by the time probably around when on a wire came out, when it kind of caught up and we're just like, we're spent, <laughs> you know, like we're exhausted. We just didn't, when we were doing something at home about, we didn't have any idea that what we were doing was uh intense 
it was just sort of like, just go, just go. Cause you can, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's just sort of like, here's the mountain, go climb it. One of the biggest differences between uh four minute mile, your debut and something right home about is the addition uh, more keyboards you had with, with James Deweese joining the band. And I'm not going to go into politics of that, mm -hmm. but because you had these songs that had keyboards and pianos and synths and stuff, did you feel like one of these songs is going to hit the top 40 or one of these songs is going to be up there with, at the time, I guess it was the only thing you had that was kind of a strike didn't you? Something about Homeback came came across kind of at the peak of new metal, like yeah. the biscuit stuff. So when you recorded something to at home about, what was the expectations of it? Our expectations of something at home about was that we wanted it to sound better than our last record. And I think that's it. Hmm. Um they're totally different albums. They're so different. Well, if you think sound. about like what a different person you were when you're I, you said you're younger than me. I'm assuming you're older than 18. Yeah. Uh, when you the <laughs> difference between being 18 and 21 is huge, and so there's also the difference of of having two years worth of touring experience and like real life experience going into it, and then also having you know enough time and studio to work with to to really like recognize. Uh, what it is you hear like to actually put on tape the thing that you're hearing in your head and on our first album we recorded that entire record in two and a half days and so it's a basically a garage rock record just kind of by default because it was like there's just no time like we just have to you know it's like can we swear here yeah totally all right so it was kind of a fuck it we'll do it live kind of kind of situation yeah. you know like and it was it's got such an it's such a sound to it uh four minute miles got such like an urgency to it because you yeah. didn't have much time to do it no <laughs> we didn't have any time to do it it was kind of like how was that take like well fine all right moving on you know like uh and that's why the vocals are so bad <laughs> just but um you know i mean I, I think if anybody tells you that they have like expectations of like, we thought this record was going to, you know, crack the top 40 or, or something like that. That's kind of just ridiculous. Cause it's just sort of like fundamentally what you have to do when you're making an album is just go like, I have to make something that makes me happy and that I like, and then mm -hmm. hopefully there are enough people in the world that like the things that I like to then translate into other people being into this. And um, that's what we've always done. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and that's okay. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the lightning in the bottle of that album, uh, was not expected, certainly not planned for, and would be impossible to duplicate. <laughs> One thing that kind of was thrust upon you, maybe that's not the right way to say it. One thing that kind of came out of nowhere <laughs> in to the vagrant family was, the success of Dashboard mm -hmm. and Chris Caraba. And I think, what was that like being part of that label that you're the small indie label and then all of a sudden you've got this, this heartthrob who's on MTV and who's kind of driving the bus in terms of he's, you know, Dashboard becomes the most popular, recognizable name on the label. What was it like being around when that happened? Uh, well, so I'd known Chris for a, a while before he even, I think, I, yeah, I knew, I met him before he even signed to Vagrant because he, we played some shows together with my 
he was opening for my side project band, the new Amsterdam's. And, uh, I love the new Amsterdam's by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, the, and so it was like, he was a friend and then I remember, so the, we had to make like a conscious choice even before dashboard blew up when like alkaline trio and saves started getting like radio play and stuff of just being like, cause it was around the same time that we had put out on a record on a wire, which was relatively divisive. And so I had to like kind of make a conscious choice of like, okay, I am not going to get jealous of my friends, like what they do and what I do. It's not like, I don't think music should be a competitive sport. And so when the juggernaut of dashboard started happening, I just remember, like, I remember seeing him play on CNN and I was just like, the fuck is this? Like, and I would like, you know, and then when like we, we toured with, we opened, let's see, like dashboard was opening for us in 2001. And then we were opening first of three in 2000 or first of, yeah. First of three in 2004. I saw you guys with uh dashboard and thrice at city yeah. market. Oh, right. That yeah. was, a, that was a weird show because they had one of those like kind of jumbotron screens. Yeah. And I could actually see myself singing from the stage. And so I literally like, I went up to Chris and I was just like, yo man, you're, that's going to fuck you up. Like you better have them turn that off. If you can just see a giant picture of your head the whole time that you're like, um, and you guys played during, it was a summertime show and you guys played during the day. It was still like bright sunshine out when you played. Yeah. That's the problem yeah. with shows like that. Yeah. But, um, you know, what are you going to do? You're the opening yeah. band. But, uh, yeah. I just remember I had a really interesting, like a moment on that, that tour when it was like, cause I brought a, a bicycle and I would like ride it around. Cause it was just like, you know, it's huge, you know, um, arenas and stuff. And there were like nine tour buses tour buses and, and semi trucks like lined up and i was just like man this is crazy all this is at the whim of this one dude <laughs> you know just like he and it's just like and it's just crazy and then he and i would sit and, and talk and like he was getting like people trying to take like paparazzi photos of him and shit and i was just like man it's this way this so handsome that guy is just devastating oh, yeah. handsome. and now like i've seen recent press photos with with the beard it's like how is that fair this guy's like 40 years old he looks like he should be on like a teen drama or something it's ridiculous yeah it's frustrating mm -hmm. that he's so good looking and talented you know yeah. like you think it's you too just, much it's too much yeah, yeah. so but yeah. no i mean he he's you know we were on tour with dashboard last year but that's the tour that got shut down when you know i remember yeah that was dope, and because wasn't that like an anniversary show of some kind, or our anniversary tour, or something? It was kind there. Of it was Dashboard's twenty year anniversary. Right. So. Oh man. Oh man. But no, to answer your question, like uh, it, 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 something that we're kind of realizing in in going back, and and this will come out more in the next episode, is kind of how up our own ass we were uh, at the time, as far as like we were less concerned about what was going on in everybody else's career and really only concerned about our own. And, um, so yeah, of course you're a little bit like, you know, well, why aren't we getting on the radio kind of thing? But then it's just kind of like, well, all right, well then let's, we're, we're really pretty doing pretty good. You know what well, I mean? Well, strangely, another strange thing that happened, strange thing that happened to the get up kids at this time was, um, overdue from on a wire, got used on one tree hill and so 
you had like this 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 group of people who knew <laughs> you as like from One Tree Hill on a song that was overdue as a pretty acoustically driven song. Well, so, it's interesting because the creator of that show, because he's licensed a couple of songs from us over the years for that show, uh, when they were doing the pilot, they wanted to use Overdue as the theme song, like as the actual like theme song to the show. And we're like, okay. And then it, cause it was a WB or CW show. I don't remember which it was. At the I think time. it was WB at the time. Yeah. Right? yeah. That they yeah. made him choose a Warner brothers musical act to do the theme song. Like it was like, uh, just like, like a political thing. And I was kind of like, well, that could have like changed. Like what a weird thing that would have been. Yeah. You know what I mean? If we had been like, Oh, you're the one tree Hill band. Like, wait, that doesn't really come up very often. Like people will, will, you know, know it sometimes, but like, um, that very much could have been like our defining factor. <laughs> yeah. I remember when that, when that happened, I was like, what is this about? Why are the get up kids on one tree Hill? How does it, how does this even make sense? Cause the show creator was a fan. That's cool. That's cool. Um, so back to Vagrant itself, what's the legacy of the record label? What is its place in that whole rock and roll nineties and two thousands scene? And well, I know it's a big, it's a big question, but it's something you, I'm sure you've heard, you've thought about. I mean, I can, I can only really talk about like, so we signed to the label in 1999 and our last record came out in 2004 on Vagrant. And that seems to be the window of, by that point, by around 2004, 2005, that like saves had left. I think maybe the trio had finished their contract dashboard had, had exploded. And then eventually things kind of shifted into like a heavier direction with like senses fail and, and the bled and stuff like that. And, um, but that moment that kind of like, it kind of culminates around 2001 specifically with this vagrant America tour that happened where we were all friends and we were all, in bands that were, were doing well. And it seemed to be something that was different enough in the zeitgeist that people took notice of it. Um, I don't think it was necessarily like completely unique. I think there were, there's always been labels that have had like a scene and a sound. Not that we, I don't I see again. I, I, I try to stay away from saying it had a sound because I, I think there is a lot of differences. Um, but yeah, I think it's a it's a good it, it it was kind of the 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 poster child for what was going on with uh our music scene at that time and it kind of kind of encapsulates that to a certain degree. Kind of it's kind of the last time that scene had success that didn't get like too big to where it got corporatized. You know what I mean? Totally. It was uh, just a perfect moment in my mind of the cross section of both popularity and independence simultaneously. I would agree with that. So before we let you go, Matt, we have this little like, you know, rapid fire game that the podcasts like to do. So we're going to do that real quick. So here we go. All right, Matt, this is what's your deal. A little game we do to find out more about our guests. So here we go. What's your favorite Kansas City barbecue place? 
I mean, I'm just going to go with, uh, well, I call it Oklahoma Joe's. It's called Joe's Kansas City now, but my my first love is always going to be Arthur Bryant's. Oh, you're a Bryant's guy. Love it. Love it. I'm a Gates guy. I grew up on Gates. So, all right. Uh, who wins in a fight? Tech Nine or Rob Riggle? Rob Riggle. <laughs> that guy was a Marine. He was a Marine. That's true. That's true. But I also wouldn't want to mess with Tech Nine. No, fuck no. <laughs> Favorite Kansas City music venue? Uh, the Record Bar. Followed secondly by the Uptown Theater is a gorgeous, a gorgeous theater. Record Bar is cool because it's bigger than what you think it is. It's yeah. deeper. And it's kind of strange that it is in a strip mall, but it also... Well, it's actually in a new... It's in a newer location. Oh, they now. moved it's, it? It's that's, how, that's how long I've been gone, Matt. I, I it's don't downtown know. across the street from the Sprint Center, um, which is the big... The T-Mobile, T-Mobile something, yeah. something. Yeah. Whatever it is. Um, we actually, uh, when last year during lockdown, we used the record bar as our rehearsal studio. <laughs> that was That's how, how tightly knit we are with them. Wow. Okay. So next question. Um, what, uh, what, uh, where was the very first get up kids gig? Technically it was yeah. in a guy called Pat the heads basement and it was on locust street. Where on locust was it? I don't remember, but we had been practicing a couple of times, had maybe like four songs and there was going to be a show in this basement at Pat the heads house. That was going to be Texas is the reason on their first tour and shift um, New York hardcore band shift and they quote unquote had a van breakdown, which I think really means that they realized they were playing in a basement in Kansas city and we're just like, fuck this. And they just, can't, they just, and, they just yeah. and they just bounce. I've never gotten confirmation from <laughs> Norm about that, but, and so we were just like, well, we'll play, you know, can we borrow somebody's guitars? And we played, I think four or five songs. And that was technically the first get up kid show. Nice. Nice. Do you know Paul Rudd? No, I've never met Paul Rudd. You've never I, met Paul Rudd. Uh, I've met Jason Sudeikis and all the people who are involved with Thundergong, which is this uh, charity that. Uh, so Jim works for a, a charity called Steps of Faith that like does. Uh, Jim Pope. Jim Suptic, actually. Jim Ryan, Pope, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ryan Pope, Jim Suptic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Jim's our, our guitar, other guitar player and singer, and they do this charity does uh, prosthetic limbs for amputees that that can't afford can't afford them. And so every year they do a big benefit and Jason Sudeikis hosts it. And so I've met him and I met Fred Armisen and, and um, Will Forte, like a bunch of SNL people. And so I've met a lot of people through that. I imagine they'll get Rudd eventually. I mean, he's from Kansas City. So. Yeah. And I feel like you should be invited to Big Slick. Let's get a campaign to get Matt Pryor in the Big Slick. With well, that's Sudeikis' thing. thing too, isn't it? Like that's his uh, yeah, thing for Sudeikis. Children's Mercy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I feel like you should you should play in it. Are you athletic at all? No. Well, okay. I, I used to play kickball, but that's it. Kickball is a, a quality sport. Kickball is mm -hmm. quality sport. I'm oh, sorry. My charger's messed up here. Okay. All right. And uh, so that brings the other question. Who is your favorite uh, Kansas City sports figure? Uh, do, you, do, you uh, even care, do you care so little about sports that you don't have an opinion about this? I don't really have an opinion. Like you okay. really need to talk to Jim about sports stuff. I will say, so I said earlier that my dad was a, a labor lawyer and eventually he went to go work. He had a couple of clients that were on the Royals and then he eventually went to go work for uh, the major league baseball players association. And so he, he was heavily connected in baseball, a sport, which I could not give less of a shit about. Mm -hmm. And 
at one point he got me an autographed copy of Bo Jackson's autobiography, Bo Knows Bo. And inside, and my mom still has this somewhere, it says, to Matt, keep rocking, Bo. Keep rocking. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was, that's the closest I've had to any, uh, sports figure that and Dan Quisenberry, who was another pitcher for the Royals. He played tennis with my, my I have a quick Dan Quisenberry story. We were at the Royals game when I was probably 12. There was a guy six, seven rows ahead of us who kind of looked like Dan Quisenberry. My dad told me and my friend Charlie that he was Dan Quisenberry. So we went up to ask for an autograph. And my dad just sat there and laughed as we asked a strange random man <laughs> autograph our ball as Dan Quisenberry. I have a Dan Quisenberry story too, if you want to hear it. Yeah, let's hear it. It's- uh, I had a friend come over when I was in grade school who was actually a baseball fan. And I was like, well, the pitcher for the Royals lives down the street. So we went over there and we knocked on the door and his wife answered. And we're like, uh, is Mr. Quisenberry here? And she turns and looks at the TV where there's a Royals game happening. And she said, no. He's at work <laughs> and like pointed us to the TV. Nice. Nice. And then our last question here, we, you already answered. I'm from Raytown. Do you think I'm white trash? The answer is no. Which I really appreciate. I, I'm, I mean, I don't know you, I would have to, I mean, eh, you gotta yeah. be careful with the term white trash. It's not exactly the most complimentary. Um, no, no, it's, it's a joke. And, and it's an inside joke for Kansas city is that, uh, Matt's from a, a nicer part of the, uh, metro area. Than well, I, I mean, you're not, you're not from independence. I mean, that was like the meth capital of, of Kansas. Right. City but we're, we're adjacent. We're independence adjacent. We get, kind I of will the, say this, a friend of mine really, you know, the Bay city rollers, the band from sure. like the Saturday sure. night, my friend, John, who, uh, he always wanted to get these jackets made that were like a Raytown based bowling league that were called the Ray city bowlers. And I always thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Also the, uh, the setting for the show mama's family was, yep. mm-hmm. was Raytown. Yes. Because I think one of the writers was from Raytown or something like that. All right, uh, Matt, really appreciate you coming by and talking to us. Um, uh, really excited. The podcast is really entertaining. Uh, oh, 25 years of vagrant records. Uh, and you can find that, ac- I guess, across all podcast platforms. That's, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any control over that, but that's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We will talk to you later, Matt. Thanks a lot. All right. Cheers. That was Matt Pryor, the get up kids. One of my favorite and Demi, thank you for humoring me. I know this was kind of my hometown guest. This would be the equivalent of you having on some uh, Bronx musician or something. Uh, So it was really New York city. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's not a ton of Kansas famous Kansas city musicians, so Matt and the Get Up Kids are one of the uh, handful of bands that made it out of of uh, that area. So, all right. Uh, as we mentioned before, I uh, hope you can throw that graphic graphic up one more time of next week's shows or this coming uh, shows later in the week. Uh, Robbie uh, Takek of the Goo Goo Dolls on Thursday and Our Lady Peace on Friday. So until then, we will see you later. Have a good day. <laughs>